Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here this morning and uh, great, just great to have you here. If you're new or visiting today, a special welcome to you. Uh, I just want to also say uh, a welcome to Jeff and Jenny Morton. I think they're here this morning. At least I saw Jenny. Uh, we had the memorial service on Monday for the passing of Jeff's daughter, Fiona, and, uh, which was a, a time of celebration of her life, um, a time of sharing of the gospel and of mourning together. And uh, our hearts continue to be with Jeff and Jenny as they grieve uh, this loss. So let's continue to uphold them in prayer. Um, And then also just wanted to welcome back Sam and Shana this morning after being married last last weekend. So let's welcome Sam and Shana back. Great to have you guys here this morning. Let me just pray as we come to the word this morning. Father God, we we truly need uh, you, Lord, to come and to minister to our hearts today the word that you, by your spirit, authored and have passed down to us all this time later to receive. Lord, we believe it's relevant, it's true, it's life-giving. Lord, it's what can feed our soul this morning. So, Lord, I pray that you might speak to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, The Bible mentions many different types of faith. It mentions weak faith, strong faith, Bold faith, rich faith, abiding faith, steadfast faith, dead faith, precious faith, common faith, working faith, and little faith. And it also speaks of great faith. And this story here that Sal just read out for us is also found in Matthew's gospel. And Jesus says to this woman, based on her reply, O woman, great is your faith. Now, this should be a topic of great interest to us, shouldn't it? If Jesus thinks that her faith is great, what is it that made her faith great? When I saw this this week, I I wanted to know this. I wanted to zoom in on and understand why Jesus saw her faith as great. Recently, I have just had a little season of searching within. Why isn't my faith stronger? Why isn't it greater? Why does it often feel so weak? Why am I tripping up on the same fears and weaknesses and worries again? And, and actually, the searching turned into a little bit of a session of beating myself up and of self-pity. And even the thought for me is, well, you're a pastor. Shouldn't your faith be greater? It seems like other people have a stronger faith than you do. It was a little bit of my journey recently. I wonder if you ever find yourself in that place. How would you describe your faith? Is it little? Is it dead? Is it great? What makes this woman's faith great? The context here in Mark is that Jesus goes, as it says in the text, to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And it's clear that it's to rest. And it's also to teach his disciples the ministry of Jesus is moving gradually from a public ministry to a more private ministry to his disciples because his disciples are going to carry on the work. And so you could think of this as like a ministry team retreat that they're having in the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's important to know that this is the first time that Jesus has has kind of ventured outside of the borders of Israel and gone into Gentile territory. It's the only time, it's the first time that Jesus does that. It's probably because everywhere he went in Israel, he couldn't get away from the crowds. And so he goes to this region. 
But no sooner does he get inside the house that they have prepared there with his disciples when there's a knock at the door. Jesus can't hide. There's a woman standing there and she literally looks like she's had the week from hell. And it's literally that way because her daughter, as we learn, has an unclean spirit. And so she is a desperate woman. Now, before we hear what she wants, Mark, the author, he stops to give us some details about this woman. Basically, he wants to tell us everything that's different about her. Everything that's all the barriers that she has to approaching Jesus. Firstly, she's a woman in a male-dominated culture. Not only that, she's a Gentile. She's Syrophoenician by birth, which is modern-day Lebanon. And so she's considered, especially by the Jews, as unclean. Remember last week you heard Lawson preach from the first part of Mark 7 about what the Jews considered to be clean and unclean. And they had all sorts of ceremonies and washings that, on the outside that would make them unclean. And, and Jesus debated that with them. And said, it's not what's on the outside of you that makes you clean, but what's on the inside. So there's this whole debate that happens. And now Jesus goes into what the Jews considered the most unclean territory that you could go. Tyre and and Sidon. Sidon. And so uh, the way that the Jews thought about people from this region were literally as the dogs. They called them Gentile dogs. The savage kind of garbage eater types. Not only that, but she's from a a people who are the ancient enemies of the Jews. We read about this through the Old Testament. Not only that, when you read in Matthew's account of this story, the disciples, when she comes to the door, they're trying to kind of get rid of her. They want to hush her and, and, and get rid of her. So the disciples are kind of standing in the way. And no less, of course, than Satan is against her. Her daughter is possessed by a demon. There's demonic activity in her family. There's an unclean spirit having its way with her daughter. And so there are many barriers that Mark wants to show us here. But, you know, parents, they don't worry too much about barriers when their children are in a dire situation, do they? They knock on every door to find an answer to the problem. And uh, notice here that Jesus, of course, he didn't want anyone to know that they were there, and this is a ministry retreat But you'd think if Jesus was hiding that it would be pretty hard to find him, wouldn't you? You'd think that Jesus would be pretty good at hiding. Well, mum found him. Why? Because she was desperate. And that's what parents do when their children are hurting. And she falls down at his feet and says, Lord, help me. It says she begged him. And we've all kind of, as if you've been here in this series with us in Mark, we've seen this kind of request before. You remember the woman who was hemorrhaging blood for 12 years, Jairus and his daughter, and the thousands of others that Jesus has healed on his travels. This should just be another easy fix, another demonstration of the compassion of Jesus for the broken, for the demon-possessed. But it's not exactly like that. It's not an immediate healing, is it? In fact, Jesus says something to her that is quite jarring, and it's even offensive to modern ears. It's not the Jesus that we're used to reading about. There's notice that he says to her, let the little children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Did Jesus just imply that this woman is a dog? Just like the rest of the Jews called them? 
You know, if one of our leaders here at church was to say such a thing to a hurting, desperate person who came to them from our community, I would send them away to pastoral school to work on their bedside manner. Now, this particular encounter here, these words of Jesus, they've been so unacceptable by different scholars and different theologians. It led one liberal theologian to write, this was slander of the worst kind and it proves that Jesus wasn't sinless. People are offended by this. Everyone's offended. The modern reader is offended by this. But what I find most interesting about this encounter is to notice who isn't offended. The liberal theologians are offended. The readers are offended. Everyone's offended, except, of course, for the woman. She's not offended. Notice she simply says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And to this, Jesus replied, O woman, great is your faith. And her daughter was instantly What made her faith so great? The first thing is this. It was built on the truth. Her faith was built on the truth. The first thing that made her faith great, it wasn't anything that she had within herself, anything that she was able to muster up. It was because of what had been revealed to her. In Matthew's account, we see this more clearly. When she first sees Jesus, she falls down at his feet and she says these words, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Now, two things that she knows by saying these things. Firstly, she knows that she is not worthy to come to this man. She's not worthy. She's simply pleading his mercy. She doesn't come like the Pharisees who are all externally washed and have self-pride and confidence and are compliant on the outside. She bears the state of her soul asking for mercy, nothing she can bring to pay for it or earn it. She just is humbly asking for it from him. That's the first thing. The second thing, she calls Jesus Lord, the son of David. She believes rightly that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of King David. Now, somehow it has dawned on her something that even the majority of the Jews could not understand, that Jesus was the promised one who would bring salvation to the Jews. This is a Gentile woman from the region of Tyre and Sidon who recognizes he is Lord, the son of David. And so in her desperate state, she has found The truth, not from within, like so many people look for it today, looking for the truth within, but on the outside, in a person, Jesus. But her grasp of the truth is even more remarkable than how she addresses Jesus. Because Jesus' abrasive response to her, which causes much offense today as we read it, was actually a parable. It's a parable. Now remember when we were first introduced to parables in the Gospel of Mark. It was back in chapter 4, the parable of the sower and the soils. And we learned that parable basically means likeness. It means likeness. So it's a story that goes alongside of a truth. And remember, we always tend to think that Jesus taught in parables because he was a super creative teacher. A really, you know, the best teacher who ever lived. But that's not why at all, remember? 
Remember that the reason that Jesus taught in parables was actually as a judgment upon people that had rejected him. So the parable actually contains truth. It has truth that's in the parable, but it's concealed. It it can't easily be seen. It's not immediately obvious what the truth is. But remember at the end of every parable that Jesus told, he says the same words, let those who have an ear to hear, let them hear. Meaning only those with spiritual sensitivity, only those with the spiritual discernment of heart could receive the truth, could receive the meaning of the parable. Well, so the parable begins like this. Let the children be fed first, Jesus says, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This is a hard saying, isn't it? But there's a few signs of hope in it, firstly, Firstly, it was well known that the Jews called the Gentiles dogs, the savage, garbage-eater kind of dogs. But Jesus actually uses a different word for dog here. The Greek word is the word for a household pet kind of dog, which are very much cared for and included in the family. So there's a little bit of a signal of hope that Jesus is, is saying by changing the word. But there's a greater point here. We shouldn't try and soften it try and defend Jesus here. There's a greater point that Jesus is teaching through the parable. And the point that he's making is that there's an order. There's a priority to the ministry that his father had given him. Let me explain it like this. When we sit down for dinner at night time, it is our first priority as parents to feed our children, not our dog Maggie. It wouldn't be right for us to take our children's food and to give it to the dog. Maggie needs to be fed, but the priority, the order, is to feed the children first. Well, what Jesus is saying here is that there is a priority to his mission. And that priority was to the children of Israel. He was sent to show Israel, the nation of Israel, God's covenant people, that he was the fulfillment of all of Scripture's promises, the the fulfillment of all the prophets, the fulfillment of all the priests, the fulfillment of all the kings, the fulfillment of the temple. And that's why all of his ministry up until this point was located within Israel's borders because he is Messiah for God's covenant people. The time was not yet for salvation to come to the Gentiles, not till after his death and his resurrection and the beginnings of the church. And so in a way, Jesus throws out a challenge to her understanding. He throws this up. It's a hard saying, and it's a barrier, and it's a challenge to her understanding of the truth. That he hasn't just come, as many people think today, to do a whole bunch of nice things for some nice people who knock on the door with physical needs. That's not why Jesus has come. There's a whole history of salvation that he's come to fulfill. And that is summed up by Paul in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So there's an order. There's a priority here. So this is a heavy chunk of truth that's contained in this parable. It's concealed in this parable about a children and the dinner table and a family dog. Now, most of the hearers of Jesus' parable among Israel would have looked at each other like, do you know what he's talking about? I don't know what he's talking about. Even the disciples had to pull Jesus aside and say, Jesus, what do you mean? What are you talking about? 
But have a look at the woman's response. She says, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. I don't know about you, but I often think of the perfect comeback to say to somebody way after the event. When it's too late. This woman has a zinger of a comeback to Jesus. In a sense, she wittingly pins Jesus down within his own parable. You see, she knows how it works. The children receive the food, but the family dog sits patiently by the table and takes the scraps that fall from it. It's as happy as ever to take what it is given. It's hard to describe the significance of what the woman says here. With this statement, she has seen the deepest of truths about Jesus. That he is not just a Messiah for the Jews, for the children, but that he has enough mercy and grace even for her, a Gentile, an outsider, a desperate woman in the pagan, idol-worshipping country of Tyre and Sidon. Hardly anyone in Israel has seen this. Not even in his hometown. But this woman, in her humble, desperate state, has seen the truth. She's not on the outside of the parable in confusion. She's on the inside of the parable with faith, with understanding. She sees Jesus. She sees the truth. She gets it. She sees that the truth is a person, that it's Jesus Christ, that he's the promised Messiah, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. She believed Romans 1.16, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile before Paul even said it. She saw that. In Jesus, it had been revealed to her. The challenge that Jesus gave her in this parable, it actually served in the end to hold up her faith before our eyes as great faith. Great faith is built on the truth. It's built on seeing the truth. Truth isn't found on the inside of you. It's revealed in the person of Jesus. It's revealed in what the person of Jesus has come into the world to do. And you see it and you believe. Great faith is not having faith in the quality of your faith. It's not looking within and seeing and shuddering at the weakness of your faith. It's looking to the person, looking to Jesus. That's where her gaze is. She's standing at the front door. She's not looking at herself. She's saying, have mercy on me, O God, and O Lord. And she's looking at Jesus. That's true faith. That's great faith. It's that the object of your faith is Jesus. It's not mustering up some self-confidence or looking at yourself and saying, well, I'm pretty good like the Pharisees. It's looking at Jesus and realizing that you have nothing to commend yourself to God except him. Him. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. And you believe that when you look at him, that he has enough mercy and grace for you too. That's great faith. That's what this woman had. She believed there was enough for her. But there's, there's more to this faith, which constitutes great faith. You see, not only has the truth been revealed to this woman, but she actually holds onto it with tenacity. Great faith is holding the truth with tenacity. 
Now, Jesus was in the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he didn't want anyone to know. He's there for rest with his disciples. But the truth, did you know the truth? It cannot be hidden. It can't be hidden. She found Jesus. She humbly fell at his feet, and she begged. Now, when the disciples tried to hush her and send away, Send her away. She went to him. She came to him and she, she said, help me, Lord. When Jesus threw up the challenge to her understanding of his mission, she wouldn't take no for an answer. She's saying to Jesus something like this. I know I'm a rank outsider. I know I don't have any rights to the family of God. I can't presume on your mercy. I'm not from Israel. No one in my life or my family worshipped the God of Israel. I don't have a place at the table. I accept all that, but I'm here now, and I'm desperate, and I believe in you, and Lord, I'm asking you for mercy to help me. She's saying, I may not have a seat at the table, but I believe that you have enough food to go around, and I'm here for my portion. She holds the truth with tenacity. You know, oftentimes in the Christian life, we can become so discouraged and weakened and burdened by our failures, our sin, our disobedience, our weaknesses, that we fall into self-pity. I can't do this. I'm not up to this. This is too hard for me. I've tried to walk this path and I just can't do it. Great faith holds on to the truth with tenacity. And that's not just blustering up your self-confidence. No, it's coming back to the basics of the truth again. We're in desperate need of God's mercy. If we are to be cleansed, then we will be cleansed by Jesus himself. And you come back to Jesus again and you say, Lord, help me. I'm here for my portion. I'm here for another serving of your mercy and grace. And you know by faith that it is there for you. And sometimes this is a fight, isn't it? It's a wrestle to hold on to this truth. You will have to have some stubbornness in believing the truth even when it's hard, when circumstances tell you not to and lead you away, when desires, when difficulties come and lead you away. You'll have to have a stubbornness of heart to come back, to hold the truth with tenacity. As Paul said to the church, forgetting what lies behind And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He knew that it was a race, that it was a fight, that the Christian life would have to hold the truth with some tenacity. Great great faith doesn't take no for an answer, it presses on. When God seems silent, when it doesn't seem like he's coming through with answers to your prayers, it comes back to the basics of what God has supplied in Jesus Christ. Great faith sees that Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish and fed 5,000 people, but great faith also sees that there were 12 baskets left over, that there's an abundance of mercy and grace, and you believe it is for you. When the enemy sows doubt and tempts you to self-pity, you come back to the truth that he is enough for you. Even if you feel weak, as this woman, woman I'm sure felt weak, She held on and wouldn't take no for an answer. And that's great faith. It's her faith in Jesus that brings cleansing. Notice here in this story that in response to her great faith, her daughter is cleansed. This is how we find the cleansing of God. When we come to Jesus with faith, when we see truth in a person, when we call upon him and say, have mercy on on me, Lord, 
Help me, O Lord. That's the faith that Jesus rewards with cleansing. I just believe that there might be some of you here this morning who have probably had the same wrestle as me, either now or recently or in the past, or you will have it in the future. You come to a desperate place and your faith seems so weak. You come to a place of self-pity. You come to a place of resignation. The word for you today is to hold on to the truth with tenacity. In your desperation of heart, of soul, in your circumstances, you have to engage in the fight for what is true. That Jesus has enough grace and mercy even for you. Great faith is to simply come to him again humbly and purely on the basis of Jesus' finished work on the cross and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Help me, Lord, I'm here for my portion of mercy and grace. This morning we're going to spend time around the table of the Lord's Supper. And you see, Jesus, the amazing thing about the gospel and about what Jesus went on to do is that he didn't just give us crumbs from the table. Through his death and resurrection, he has given us, Jew and Gentile, believers in Jesus, a seat at his eternal table his eternal feast. He offered his body and his blood that we might be cleansed, that we might be redeemed, that we might be transformed, and that we might have eternal hope. And so we're going we're gonna to take the, the bread and the cup this morning. And maybe as we take it this morning, it may be that you're struggling to hold on to the truth at the moment. It's a real fight for you. I want to invite you to the table of the Lord to be reminded again that his grace and mercy is even for you, that he came not to, for the righteous, he came for the sick. And that as you take this bread and this cup, it really is just a crumb, isn't it? It's just a small little foretaste of the great things that God has in store for us, the reality of your future that you will be with Christ in his kingdom for eternity. I pray this morning, even that as you take it tangibly in your hand, as you hold the bread and actually as you feel it in your mouth, that you taste the grace and the mercy of Christ again, afresh in your life. So I want to invite you now to bow your heads. And just before we do take the bread and the cup, some of you, if you don't have the, the bread and the cup, uh, the the, the Um, You can get it from the back in just a moment. But I want to take a few moments just that you would quietly humble yourself before the Lord. Give him your heart. Confess your sin to him again. Reaffirm your faith in him. Declare to him, Lord, I'm coming to you this morning for my portion. I'm coming to you just asking for mercy, not not as a Pharisee, not as anyone who has anything that I can offer. I'm coming to you to say, Lord, have mercy on me. Help me, Lord. So why don't you just take a few moments just to spend time with him.